So I just want to encourage you that when we talk about evangelism, this isn't like we're going out in, in wrestling people out of their reluctance. I think it's really beginning to just step into, uh, step willingly into the openness that's actually out there, but we're too afraid to test the water. Um, and it's a, it's, a, it's a step of faith. And a step of faith is always beginning by stepping into the dark onto a rock. Um, and so I want to just begin with, just to show you that how powerful um, this, this is. And man, I was so inspired by, by Jerry um, Sitzer's. One of the things that made him such a powerful communicator is that not only is he a PhD and he was brilliant, like stinking, like just a walking encyclopedia of quotes and church history that just remind you that we're, our faith is built on such a rich history, such a beautiful history. Western civilization, every facet of it, both the bad and the good, still owes its existence to the church, no matter what anyone says. I think it's pretty important for us to understand that. But the way the gospel has gone around the world, it's just incredible uh, where we're seeing even today um, just continued, just unbelievable fruit in places like the Middle East and in China, um, in the places that are truly unreached, um, are, are the gospel's awakening there. It's, it has truly gone around the world and has almost made its circuit, which makes me believe that the time of Christ's return is not, is not far from us. And don't worry, I'm not going to turn into a cult leader and tell you that it's happening on, you know, November 6th next year, so we need to get ready and stock up our, uh, our, our, our basements with, with survival foods. Um, so I, um, I, I really was touched by, um, by this. I got a letter, an email uh, this week, um, or last week. I, I did a men's retreat for a church called Ecclesia um, in Eugene, uh, and my friend Wesley um, Town planted that church, and it was very similar to Door of Hope, explosive growth, like went up, actually went up to like 2,500 people in the first five years. Um, and it's a church that's just continued to be really effective. Wesley handed it over to another pastor, and they've really gotten involved with um, Eugene Mission. And they brought a group of really rough dudes from the mission to this men's retreat. And they were all sitting in the front, all these guys from the mission, and they all looked like ex-like hell's angels. I mean, they were they, they look different than the Portland guys, <laughs> but, and we've got some pretty tough looking guys, but these guys were like, it's like not a lot of teeth, a lot of, a lot of face tattoos. And I shared the story of my, of my dad and that, that journey with him and sections from the book on the, on the cross and God's understanding of our brokenness. I talked about grace. I talked about mixture. Um, I talked about the cross and I just wove it with personal stories. And I shared on Saturday night, um, about my dad's death and being with him when he died and what that was like and what that was like knowing that he had prayed to receive Jesus. Um, and this man wrote me, I actually have gotten several letters, but this guy wrote me this letter and I'm not going to read you the whole letter because it was 10,000 words. Just to give you an idea, my book is only 42,000 words or 46,000 words. So he, like, he wrote me a letter that's a quarter the size of my book. Um, so I just picked a few, and he's an amazing writer, and his name is Charles Geronimo. And I actually wrote him and asked if it was okay if I share a few pieces from this letter, because he, he's so eloquent. 
He says, uh, he says this, he says, hello, Josh, you don't know my name and you don't know my face. I was at the Ecclesia men's retreat this past weekend and I felt a true need to reach out. In fact, I've been working quite diligently on this message, much to the irritation of my significant other. Before I go any further into what now appears to be de developing into a rather extensive confession, and by a very probable lengthy beginning, an update as of the finished state of this work that would actually lies ahead is, is a great breadth of testimony spanning nearly 10,000 words. For this, I'm sorry. But before anything else occurs, I need to say these things first. Your sermon on Saturday finally allowed me to surrender and submit completely to the way and to give my heart unreservedly over to Jesus. It took someone from my world, the filthy gutter, a hellborn, a fellow witness to and participant of the perilous depredations of human evil to make it possible for me. You are not just a conduit, sir, lifting Jesus on high. Oh no, my brother, your purpose for me was clear and I have been thinking long hours upon what happened and have tried to tell the truth as best as I am capable for you here. First, this truth. I felt the love of Jesus truly for the first time through your preaching or at least my heart open to receiving the loving embrace of Jesus due to your guiding sermons. I'm still trying to sort out what happened, why and when. The result was that on Saturday night after you spoke of your life and wept so tenderly and courageously in front of all of us silent strangers, I became deeply moved. I saw my face mirrored in the bottom of the well of your pain that you had so bravely removed the cover of, of for us to look into. You bore your own heart's sorrow and joy of its redemption, showing it strongly, enduring its weight so freely for all to see. You allowed for us to witness in open view your true spirit and deepest wounds, weeping with joy and sadness and honesty. I think it was that, that true vulnerability exposed and displayed, that powerful pain and joy mixed together into the gorgeous human tapestry of spirit so rare to witness in this world. I saw it clearly streaming with bright love from you to all of us, your emotions, experience, and stirring movement into all of our hearts. I pray for any man's heart that was not moved in those moments when you wept for your father. I have never experienced something so human, so true, so honest, so good, so familiar, allowing us to share in the deep chords of your sweet sorrow. I wept as you wept, and when worship began, I surrendered completely and gladly. There stood a lifelong atheist, coward and dedicated citizen of the wilderness with hands raised high and wide to heaven, giving my whole life, my whole heart, my ocean of pain, my rage, my deep screaming fear, my doubt, my excuses, my purpose, my everything and anything over to Jesus in his way. And then I felt myself free fall gladly and with serene blossoming joy in my heart, spirit, soul, I dove headlong and with confidence, headlong and with conviction directly into the arms of Jesus Christ, the King I now serve wholly. I felt him embrace me, Josh White. I felt him welcome me. I felt him tell me that I was loved. And there I found much to my great surprise for the first time, I also loved him in return. It's all true. My God, it's all true. Eureka, hallelujah, I have been saved. Amen. In those moments, I found peace. I have been searching for every moment of my life. For the first time, I know what it is to love and to be loved. I have bowed. You have helped me bow, brother. 
I await kneeling, waiting for my purpose to be revealed to me by my Lord. <laughs> That's all you need when you're leading a church and you experience so much heartbreak and so much, um, you know, in order to be a pastor of a church, you have to learn how to have thick skin and, and maintain a tender heart. It's very easy for those things to become reversed, to have thin skin and be easily offended um, and get a hardened heart to people. I don't know who this guy was. I don't know if he was one of the rough guys. All I know is that Charles Geronimo is an amazing name and he should be a preacher. And my God, what a writer. Um, <laughs> uh, but the thing that I love about this is notice what he said. He didn't say, you saved me. He goes on to say, he goes, God used you as you became the hand by which the hand of Jesus invited me in um, to his kingdom. Uh, there was nothing about, there's nothing about my eloquence. It was about my honesty, about my brokenness, and my deep conviction that Jesus has entered into that pain, that he cares about it, and that the cross of Calvary really is the center of everything, and that I don't know why we hurt, but I do know that Jesus has entered into that pain and made it his own, and you can trust him. And one of the first things I wanted to say about evangelism uh, is it's not our responsibility. I didn't even, I, this guy like gave his life to Jesus. I didn't do like this big, I had people stand if they, if they felt like they were, um, I kind of assumed everyone was, I mean, I never really assumed that everyone's a Christian, but I, but I basically just asked guys if they like, if they felt like there were things hindering them from knowing Jesus to stand up. So it was like everybody stood like, and there wasn't, it wasn't like this big, like if you've never accepted Jesus into your heart, that didn't happen. It was just the gospel was clearly presented, but it was a gospel that was connected to my own humanity, my own brokenness, my own honesty about my own sin, my own insecurities, my fears, my anxieties, my journey with my, with my own father, which was such a painful journey, but also, and, and then trying to show them that when the gospel is at the core of our lives, that we actually can find, even in the darkest moments of our existence, pinpoints of grace or God's providence moving. Um, and and it, it reminded me of, of what evangelism actually is. And it's not, this is the thing I, I wanna just begin by saying, evangelism, is not, uh, is not some kind of robust explanation of doctrine. Doctrine is extremely important. Doctrine uh, is the thing that undergirds um, what it is that we believe. Doctrine is our understanding of the nature of God as revealed through scripture. Um, and that is unbelievably important. But the thing is, is that the thing that has caused more church divisions than anything else Everyone under the umbrella of orthodoxy believes that Jesus died on the cross for sinners. Uh, where, where Christians lose their purpose and lose their evangelism and their witness and then lose their, the communal connection that we should have as believers is when we start arguing, we start blood, blood wars over the mechanics of things that are somewhat wrapped in mystery. <laughs> So it's all of our speculative stuff around what actually happened in the atonement. Um, did Jesus die for all or did he die for some? Did he, you know, the, what, what, what does it mean to be saved? 
the thief on the cross did not get the mechanics of atonement. What he got was a cry out. He saw in Jesus something that he realized he, need, he saw something in him that was not normal, which was innocence, pure innocence, and also continued compassion, even for the very people that were hurting him. He, what he saw in the life of Jesus being poured out was a, a true goodness that could not have human explanation. And all he could do was, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Uh, there was no, and what did Jesus say? Assuredly today, you'll be with me. And it tells us the first thing about evangelism is evangelism is not, is not, is not apologetics. Um, it's not arguing people into the kingdom. Evangelism at its, at its core is simply being a witness. And if I was to define what a witness is, is a witness is a herald. And a herald is just someone who has been given a message by the king, and that message must be continued to be passed out. So all we are doing is introducing people to the king. This is why in evangelism, the most powerful tool you have in your own belt is your own testimony. Um, and I think that, believe me, that, like, I have yet to see someone um, come to faith in my 24 years of ministry, and I love theology. Like for me, my devotional life, I feel closest to Jesus when I read when I read guys that are dead that write five million words and it's in little micro print and you have to wear, I have to wear, I literally, my eyes are getting so bad, I use this 10 times magnifying glass to read my old books because my eyesight's that bad. It's one of the reasons I read on an iPad, which I think is actually hurting my eyes because I can blow the words up so big because last time I tried to preach from a Bible, I literally couldn't read it. It's like, I guess I just need to memorize it. And that's probably what I should be working on now is before I lose my eyesight totally. But in all of my reading of theology, all that's done is further strengthen my own belief in what happened to me 24 years ago. It's, it's, it's strengthened my, my confidence in Jesus. But, it, but the thing that I have found that connects with people at their most deepest level is just the fundamental conviction that Jesus really actually loves you. He really loves you. That he really died for you. Um, and, and I believe that in the depths of my being because I have tasted his love. And I have seen that he is good. And he is yet to disappoint me. Um, I have gone through much disappointment in ministry. Um, and I've gone through incredibly hard times. Uh, but what I have found when I come through those seasons is I am able to find and look back and see how God was with me through, through all of it. And so I want to just lay out for you guys some really practical ways, because I think one of the things that intimidates us when it comes to sharing our faith with people is, um, is we get so concerned with, I don't know the Bible well enough yet. And listen, you should be students of the Bible. You should have a hunger for the word. You should care about doctrine, right? Doctrine does matter. Um, heresy is a real thing. Uh, one of the, one of the fra fragile places of evangelicalism um, has always been um, it's prone to emotionalism uh, and it's prone to a shallow faith um, because its emphasis has been on conversion. 
And it's one of the reasons that a lot of people's faith does not endure when, when difficulty comes. So I'm not saying that we shouldn't be grounded in our doctrine. But what I am saying is that the most powerful tool that you have when it comes to sharing your faith with others um, is, your, is your humanity. <laughs> it's your humanity. There's a famous statement. Um, I, I can't remember who said it. Um, it was uh, that we... Um, that Christians are called to be supernatural. But what we need to understand is that God brings the super, and our responsibility is to be natural. Christians really struggle with being natural. I don't know what it is, why we get so weird, so quick, and weird in ways that we shouldn't be weird. We can, there's a lot of things that make us weird. I mean, our beliefs are weird enough, but we add to that with an awkwardness and stiffness in which we look at humanity and enter into it like weird aliens, observing it with like a, huh, like we're like, we're like data or something. Um, we should be more in touch with our emotions, more in touch with our own brokenness, and recognize that the thing that actually creates an appeal to what we believe is an honesty about that brokenness because our honesty with our brokenness is the thing that, that tells the other that they have a confidence in spite of all this, these issues that they're sharing about themselves. There's, there seems to be this calm confidence that this God they believe in um, isn't, he doesn't stop loving them because of their failure. Uh, he doesn't stop, he, he, that he's with them and he seems to even be aware that the very, thing, the very vehicles by which he has chosen to bring his message um, seem to be deeply flawed individuals. Uh, now, the church is still suffering from what I call a Puritan hangover, which is we think that it is our responsibility, and I think this is why um, evangelicals um, uh, in evangelism is, suffer so deeply these days, is that it's because we, and it's one of the reasons the world continues to become more and more turned off by the church, is this idea that we, that the way to win people to Jesus is by presenting to them an ideal that we ourselves can't keep. Like, like, I don't lust anymore. I never get angry anymore. Like, I'm, like, come, come imitate me. Look at my, look at the moral perfection in my life. No, that is not what we're called to present, and nobody's interested in your morality, what they're interested in is the authenticity of the Jesus that you say you know. Um, and don't get me wrong, it's not that Jesus, the life of Jesus won't play itself out um, in our ethics, but our ethics is not the thing that will save people. And so when I think about evangelism, um, I, I think about a few passages uh, in the Bible. And I think let's, let's even move away evangelism is a beautiful word because it comes from the word evangel which is just good news when I don't the word I do not like is proselytize because um, proselytize um, carries with it um, a it's um, it's just too darn close to prostate um, and uh, um, <laughs> I, I find it, when I say it I always immediately um, uh, it's like why I, I rarely say the word prostrate because one time I said it and I said prostate, and everyone laughed at me, and I'm like, I'm never saying that word again. Because um, when I'm preaching, I'm already nervous, so I like immediately like, wait a minute, did I say the right one, or did I say the wrong one? Proselytize, there's just like a, there's a, 
there's a harshness to that word, and it's not a, it's not a common vernacular word. So it carries with it something that is achieved by force. I think that that's, it's you, um, uh, you trying to, you know, like force me into something that I don't want. Um, I, I much prefer the concept of witness. And witness is just, is identifying what it is in us that is transformed and then sharing that transformation with others. It's inviting people in. Um, and so uh, what I want us to think about are like, what are the key things? What do you think, um, first of all, some of you here uh, maybe have never actually led someone to the Lord. Um, and, and I would just say, um, if, if that's you, I don't want you to feel, and there might be many of you that have never actually, actually led someone to Jesus. Um, don't beat yourself up, but I do want you to ask the question of, of what, what's the reason behind that? And is, is the reason behind that, if that's you, um, is it, is it because you're not in conversation with people that don't know Jesus? Do you not actually know any non-believers or is it, or have you actually tried and every time you've tried, no one's been interested in what it is that you're sharing. My gut tells me that it's, uh, that, that the lack of, um, the experience of Christians seeing people come to faith, my gut tells me that it's not due to just general rejection. And if it is general rejection, um, I think that, that we have to ask the question, um, well, what is my methodology? Um, are they rejecting the gospel because literally everyone I've ever shared with has zero interest in Jesus? Or is there maybe something in the way that I'm presenting the gospel that, and, and this is, a, this is a, a humbling question to ask ourselves, is you didn't present to them anything that they saw in you that they wanted. And that's a, that's a hard question to ask ourselves. Um, is there something about our lives that actually others want? Do they sense in us a, um, an X factor, if you will? Like, what is it that gives this person the ability to endure um, difficulty? What is it that gives this person? But that might be one, that might be one issue. The other thing is, is um, not paying attention to the patterns of Jesus himself, who seem to almost always start in the natural before moving to the spiritual. Um, that is a loss. This is where I think Christians can be, um, uh, we can be so, uh, I can't, when I came to faith, I came to faith in the Calvary Chapel movement. And Calvary Chapel was, um, uh, went from being this naturally evangelistic explosion during the Jesus movement. Um, and then it became a, it became the movement turned into something that required a machinery that kind of defined it. Um, and so you have distinctives now that define what is a person that's truly a part of Calvary Chapel. And those distinctives um, led more and more to a cloistering and a cutting off from the world to the point where there was no ability to actually interact with it intelligently. Um, and so, you know, it's like, when I came in, when I came to faith, it was all, I mean, literally, I felt like half the services were about, uh, were either about the, the end of the world and the rapture, 
um, and kind of newspaper, uh, newspaper prophecy. Uh, like it was like a pin the tail on the Antichrist every week. Um, and then, uh, and then the, you know, the dangers of things like Harry Potter and Halloween and, you know, major emphasis on homeschool movements, everything to protect and insulate ourselves from the outside world. And as a guy who came to faith at 27, I was just like, I, I did not know what was going on. And I was like, man, I'm kind of glad I came to faith by just reading my Bible in my apartment because I don't know that I would have come to faith had this been my experience out of the gate. Um, and, and what I think is, is, is in des we are desperately in need of, in need of is, is learning how to intelligently interact with people um, and meet them where they're at. And the first thing, so write this down, when it comes to sharing the gospel with people, we need to remember that people are not projects. People aren't projects. They're people. They're divine image bearers. And divine image bearers are, are, are people who, like you and I, have been made in the image of God, and though that image is deeply marred and sin has infiltrated every arena of their lives, um, we need to understand that they are a people that were made just like you and I um, to be in communion with God, but, it, but we have to respect their humanity. Um, we have to care about them because, not, not because of what we can get from them or in our attempts to get them to join our team, per se, but one of the things that makes evangelism compelling is when people feel what makes, excuse me, makes the gospel appealing is when people actually feel like they are loved. Let me give you an example of that. You guys know the story of the young rich ruler. Jesus, um, and I'll just give you a couple examples where, G, where this is the very methodology that Jesus uses, and there are many. Um, the young rich ruler runs up to Jesus, and he says, Lord, Lord, you know, tell me what I must do to enter the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus, and um, uh, he said, good teacher, um, or good teacher, tell me. He said, why do you call me good? There's none who are good but God. Basically saying, you're not good and I'm God. That's the first thing that Jesus is essentially saying to him, which is fast. He doesn't get it, though. Um, and, he, and he says, he says, we'll keep these commandments. And he's, he's basically, he's leading the guy toward his own, his, the things that's hindering him from the eternal life that he's seeking, and um, which actually is standing in front of him. He doesn't realize that eternal life is someone, not something. Um, but what I love is that the, guy, the kid says, and I, I believe he says it sincerely, and I would argue that his zeal and his um, pursuit of divine things is something that we could actually learn a lot from, but that's a different message. Um, but Jesus says, do these things, and he says, I've done all those things since my youth. This is one of those moments where Jesus does not view the man as a project, um, and by the way, this is also, um, this is also a knife in, um, in what I think is a horrendous theology, which is that God hates the sinner. That comes out of, literally, it's a drawing out of like a couple verses, um, primarily the Psalms, Psalm 10 or Psalm 20. Um, it, it, do I not hate, does God not hate the wicked? Um, I think it's very dangerous to build an entire theological grid out of a single poem 
a single verse in a poem. When Jesus says, love your enemy, keep in mind, God asks nothing of us that is not first true in himself. And, and we, can, and we get, the, get this um, most clearly when the writer says, um, and I believe it's in Luke, um, it's in Luke if I remember correctly, where it actually points this out. It says that Jesus looked at him and loved him and said to him, these things you lack. Go sell everything you have. Give, your, give the money you make from it to the poor and then pick up your cross and follow me. And it says the young rich ruler left. He didn't, and at least not in that moment, did he become a believer. And as a lost sinner, it's Jesus looked at him as a divine image bearer. It says that he loved him. And I think that that is a missed moment in that story that holds incredible significance. One of the things that makes the gospel compelling, and it doesn't mean that everyone's going to get saved, but everyone that we interact with should feel that we care about them, that we care about them. So in order for people to not be projects, it requires um, within us, first of all, this fundamental conviction that on our worst day we are loved if you don't believe that God loves you in the depth of your being you will not be effective in sharing the love of God with someone else so this is another hindrance for a lot of people is that they themselves struggle with the belief that I am loved and so their evangelism is just them attempting to share what they've been told to share it's like that's why I don't like I'm I mean Whatever, any tool that brings people to faith is wonderful, and evangelism explosion is incredibly effective. But I'm telling you, in the current world that we live, in the way that human beings interact, and the emotionalism of our current age, we have to be able to speak into that. Even if they are misguided and being led by their emotions, we need to be able to penetrate that reality. And people are generally, what I have found, open to conversations about spiritual things when they feel like they are not being treated like some kind of project, um, someone to be saved. Um, rather, we are introducing them to the Savior who alone can save. My responsibility is to be a carrier of the, of the Savior to the ones who don't know yet that they need to be saved. And I am just called to love them where they're at, to be respecters of the, of the very people that we're called to love on. Um, and I think that this is incredibly important. So people aren't projects. Um, another story where I think that we see that Jesus does this is when he interacts with the woman at the well, um, is that he just begins to interact with her and he meets her where she's at. He knows how to how to meet with her at where she's at. So this is, a, this is another aspect of, of evangelism. I think it's extremely important. And that is the ability to meet people. I am a person who God has cursed me um, and blessed me with, uh, with um, a diversity of interests that goes beyond what should be um, allowable. Uh, and I... I literally am interested in everything. And all I can do with that kind of temperament is do my best to make it all serve the main thing, the supreme thing. So one of my basic go-tos for sharing the gospel is I just look, I just try to be very, very attentive to the person I'm talking 
with and I try to find out immediately where their interest lies, like what they're into. And it does not matter. There's a, there's a few things that I'm not, I, even things that I'm not, subjects I'm not, I don't know much about. I try my best to try to interact with them um, in that spot. But it's, I, I'll give you an example. I was in a, um, uh, I was in a cab in New York and the cab driver was, was Russian um, and, uh, and Darcy was teasing me. She's like, I don't know how you did that, but it's like, I'm sorry to talk about this to the Russian cab driver. And I was like, immediately like, oh man, I've been to Russia. I've been to Russia five times. So right there, it's point of interest. Like, where have you been? He's super fascinated. But then I start touching on Russian culture, points of pride for Russians. And I just said, I think Russia has produced some of the greatest literature in human history. Um, and he's in every, if you know this about Russia, every Russian, like at 13, they have to read Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. Like they're like, it's, it's mandatory, like stuff that most people in America won't read ever. Like they're like having to read it. And they, they, you know, there's just certain things that they just have that they have that's just like, that's just in their culture. So if you touch on it, it, they will talk to you about it. And so I said, I'm like, I love Russian literature immediately. Guys like, well, you read, and I was like, I'm like, I'm like, well, I've read, I've read all of Dostoevsky's major works, and he goes, what do you think of him? And I said, honestly, I don't really like him. I'm like, but I think he's an amazing observer of human nature, and and I and I share with him my favorite scene out of Brothers Karamazov, and he's like, and he was like. It's good. He's like, but you should like him. I'm like, I, I don't really like him. I think his prose kind of sucks. I'm not going to lie. But I, but I think he's an amazing thinker. And he started laughing. And then I go, honestly, probably my favorite Russian author, which I know Russians don't like, um, is probably Nabokov. Because um, they kind of view him as like a traitor because he came to America and he wrote better in English than any English writer. But this conversation, but then he's like, well, so what do you do? Are you a tattoo artist? And I'm like, I'm like, no, I actually, I'm a pastor. And he's like, like a priest? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I'm a pastor. And he's like, he goes, that's crazy. And I'm like, I'm like, what, I don't look like a Russian Orthodox priest? And he's like, well, you wouldn't be smiling if you were that. That was the funniest thing he said to me. And it's totally true. But this conversation then immediately moved from that to what kind of church? And I told him, I go, it's, it's a Christian church. And I go, actually, I've, I've actually read quite a bit of Eastern Orthodox writing, and I've been learning a lot. Um, I'm fascinated by it. I don't fully understand it, um, and, uh, but I'm trying to get my head around it, and there's a lot of beauty there, and so I've, I've benefited from some really amazing thinkers as a pastor. And then he was like, what happens? Immediately starts sharing with me struggles he's having in his family, and that opens up to gospel. Ask how I can pray for him, now, I think invite this guy to church, but I'm just saying it's not actually that hard to move into spiritual things when we actually approach people like people and we find points of connection um, by which we can actually move it into spiritual conversations. Um, and sometimes it happens way faster. If someone just asks, like, you know, sometimes it'll be, you know what it, my, my new thing is, is giving people tattoos. And I've been... <laughs> And I've been, which by the way, I just got reported to the Oregon Health um, Services. So, um, so if one of you reported me, I'm super bummed on you. Um, 
for not having a license because Oregon uh, is so broke that it'll make its money anywhere. And they literally told me that it's illegal for me to tattoo myself. And I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm not going to obey that law. That's just dumb. Um, and he's like, well, it's a $2,500 fine. I'm like, okay, I might obey that law. Maybe. <laughs> so, um, but I was, I, one of the things I loved is that I would tell people that I, everyone in Portland has a tattoo and people always ask me about mine. So I was like, I go, yeah, they're like, do you tattoo? And I'm like, I do actually. And they're like, do you have a shop? And I'm like, kind of, it's at my house. Um, I'm not licensed, but you know, I just, and I, I do it basically for free cause I'm still learning and people are so, so ridiculous in Portland. They're like, I'll take a free tattoo, even if you're terrible. Um, and you get them in the chair and inflict pain on them for two hours. And next thing you know, you're talking to them about Jesus. It's incredible. And I've done that now. I've, I actually have tattooed two people that work at weed shops. And then they got in there and they had no idea what was going to happen to them. And, um, and one, one of the guys actually came to Door of Hope and visited um, after, after that. Now, he hasn't come back. But all I'm saying is that people are not as closed off to the gospel as you might think. You know, a passage that, that has been a guiding light for me in evangelism has been, um, has been uh, 2 Timothy. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. I cannot tell you how far you just simply loving people where they are at will take you. When I picked up when I helped that woman um, pack up her sleeping bag in front of my house um, and uh, who had slept in front of our house all night and had me drive her back to her tent. I mean, I did everything in me to try to connect with her, to try to get her story. And it was difficult. She was, um, she was very guarded. Um, but she started opening up and I just, the thing that she would never have said anything to me. She wouldn't have had a word to say to me had I not just treated her like a human being and said, can I drive you? Can I drive you back to your tent? Can I get you a cup of coffee on the way? Um, is there anything I can do to help you? Um, I gave her information about the shelter. I gave her a card for Door of Hope. I said we, uh, we would do what we could to try to help you get into a shelter if you want. But it's just understanding people where they're at and then meeting them there. Um, but here's the thing, friends. The second thing that you need um, when it comes to evangelism is you need to actually believe in the depths of your being that God has created you for a moment such as this. And every person you come into contact with, their lives are hanging in the balance between heaven and hell. And though we are not to treat people like, like projects, we are to live with a deep, so I just focused in on the very human side. We meet them in our humanity, but we are guided by our, by our, by our worldview that holds within it eternity. And that means that if we really believed that it is possible that the people we know could spend an eternity separated from God in, in, in horror, in isolation, um, in brokenness, in misery. I, I, there's a famous story of a, of a criminal that was, was um, going to be, um, it was, he was an English criminal that was being put to death. 
And, um, and as he was being walked to the gallows, uh, there was a clergy, an Anglican priest, who was reading to him passages um, about heaven and hell, and specifically about hell. And the criminal turned around to him and said, how can you read those words to me with no emotion? Like you don't care. He said, if I believed what you were telling me, I would crawl across England on broken glass on my hands and knees to make sure not one person would ever go to a place like that. But that's the thing. Do you believe in the reality that death for us is an unavoidable reality as well as everyone we meet and that it has been appointed once for man to die and then comes the judgment that we have the ability to offer people the only cure for their for for their for their blindness for their sickness for the chains that they find themselves in um, and do we believe that Jesus is the answer and has actually commissioned us to be the conduits by which we point people to him Jesus said if I be lifted up I will draw all people to myself the question is is do we lift him up and so we need to be natural in how we approach people, but we need to have a supernatural understanding of what is going on behind the scenes. That there is a reality being played out and that we are participants in God's great redemptive purposes in human history. So in personal evangelism, I would just simply say this, that that conviction should lead and, and the only thing that will actually lead us to share the love of Jesus with others is that we have to know the Jesus that we're sharing. And we have to know that he wants to seek and save others through us. And we have to believe that his love for me is not meant to be kept to myself, but it is meant to be given away. Grace is meant to be given away. as we Because there will never come to an end, end, end of it, but it is not meant to be taken in and then just and then held in. I think we think we can live on the fumes of yesterday's graces. Every day his mercies are new. Every day is a new opportunity by which God should be opening our eyes. We should be praying, Lord, show me who it is that you would have me share your love with today. A guy came to Door of Hope this morning because Darcy invited him to church. And the moment he found out I was a pastor, he walked in, he delivered a treadmill to our house. Um, with Darcy's trainer, um, and they, they carried in, his name was Ranger, maybe some of you met him today, um, and Ranger is like, I grew up Presbyterian, and I've had a really hard several years, really hard, um, and I need something, and Darcy just loved on him, and by the end, he was like, can I, can I get a card? Can I come to your church? And I didn't think he would come today, and he, he showed up at second service. It's not, it's not that complicated. So on a personal level, we have to see people as people. We have to love them where they're at, but we also need a supernatural understanding of the world that's at play and a deep conviction that God's love for us is meant to be shared with them and that heaven and hell hangs in the balance. So I always say that the threat, the, the danger of, of, of the wrong decision for lost should weigh on us, but the only thing that will compel us is love. And it is the love of God that will actually make us care about the dangers that are at stake. Because my love of my kids meant sure, made sure that 
I did everything I could to protect them, right? So I think that this is important. But here's the most beautiful thing, and I want to leave you with this as we're going into church in the park, is that it is the community together, our love for one another, that actually is the most powerful thing when it comes to our witness. What we need to understand is we go into church in the park, there is now a group of people that all have the Holy Spirit who have all been saved by the same Jesus. And we now are being the body of Christ. The explosion, evangelistic explosion in the book of Acts was not driven by necessarily singular street preachers, although we see that Paul, Paul is going from city to city. But the, the, the fastest explosion, especially in the first few chapters, was just the community of faith living out the gospel together. And they came together regularly with an expectancy to meet with the living Christ. And here's the thing. You know, the early church, you never see them in Acts pray for the lost. What you see them praying for is the courage to share with the lost. They, they realize my prayer needs to be, Lord, make me courageous that I might be confident to live out this gospel before the world in which I have been placed. And we're going to step out into this park on Wednesday night, Church in the Park. And Church in the Park is, is a place where there are going to be all these non-believers hanging around. And they're going to be lounging around. They're going to be smoking weed. They'll be drinking. They'll be playing games. They'll be playing basketball. Um, last year, the, the naked bicycle ride um, showed up behind Pip while he was preaching, which is, oh, I'm so jealous. That, so many great things about that story, Pip, and mainly that it was you preaching that night um but just you know I I think I I probably would have um gone too far and immediately used it as an opportunity as like a living illustration of of the reality of that death is coming for all of us by the way that gravity has taken hold of bodies before your eyes um but you know Pip is far more polite than that he would never do that and look at I just said don't use people as projects but for sure use them as the bunt of your jokes. That's a super effective way to share the gospel. <laughs> Just make fun of them terribly. Tease them. Um, they'll run to Jesus. Uh, no, but the community of faith, the power of... What, what, is, I, what I love about that story, though, is the, um, the collision of worldviews. A group has gathered to worship Jesus and a group has gathered to flaunt their individualism and their own god their own godhood, um, the, their willingness to, to, like, we want to be naked in our, in our faith, in, in, in naked in our, in our honesty about our own brokenness um, and how beautiful Jesus is, and they want to be literally naked in their, in their flaunting of, of um, their freedom to do whatever they want, whenever they want, and these are the opposing worldviews that come together, but I promise you, in all of that flaunting is, are, is a bunch of people that, like everyone else, just want to be loved. They want to be accepted. They want to be known. And they're chasing after it in the wrong way. And we have the ability, by our love for one another, to redirect that. And Door of Hope, I think, has the ability right now to be more powerfully evangelistic as a community because we're multi-generational, which we did not have in the early days. You know how many people came to Door of Hope in the early days and left because they're like, it's too hipster, it's too young, and like, 
everyone's so cool and beautiful and and I'm not saying that we're not beautiful anymore but it's a mixed bag now um, and uh, um, and listen before it may have been young and beautiful but it was also not great hygiene um, so <laughs> it had its cons um, but there's a but the, the multi-generational facet is something that just is not seen in the world in, in very there's not many examples of that other than the family we are to reflect a new kind of family in that in, in this communal sense. And so our ability to bring what we do as a church out into the open, here's the best way to begin steps toward sharing your faith with others. The first thing you should do, I'm just gonna give you, I'm gonna give you, give you four things right now. Okay, here it is. Number one, don't let anyone in your life that you are in regular relationship with, don't let them go through their relationship with you and not know that you're a Christian. I know that seems so basic, but it is incredible to me how many people go to Door of Hope where most of the people in their lives don't even know they're Christians because they don't share. They're like, well, it's inappropriate at work and I could get fired, blah, blah, blah. Listen, there is ways to share with people, very natural ways. Like, if someone asks you, what are you doing this weekend? Like, I'm going to church. You go to church? I do. Yeah, you should. It's, it's awesome. It's, a, it's an amazing place. So does everyone you know, I mean, and I'm, talk, I'm not talking about everyone you don't know that you meet. Um, begin with everyone you know. If, if everyone you know, does your neighbor, do your neighbors know that you're Christians? Um, have, have, you, have you actually got to know your neighbors in a way that you would even be comfortable inviting them to church with you? Um, so that's the first thing. Jesus said very clearly, what I tell you <laughs> in secret, pronounced from the rooftop. In other words, there are no closet Christians when it comes to Jesus' disciples. They were a people, and, and honestly, every time the, the church went into, um, became fearful of man, um, it's wreaked havoc. Uh, and every time the church has become fearful of, of offending people because we're Christians, it has wreaked havoc. Um, it will kill the church faster than anything. Is, it, is if we think, oh, I'm not going to share with anyone that I'm a Christian because I don't want to be offensive. I promise you then this church is done after this generation. It doesn't matter. Um, like if we don't believe that the message that we, that we hold on to and the Jesus that we know isn't worth giving to others, then what are we doing as a church? I'm not interested in just having more friends. I'm interested, uh, I have too many friends as it is. I am interested in being a part of a community that takes it seriously, the idea that we actually can make a dent in the makeup of, of Portland, Oregon, because God has called us to lift Jesus up and Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I'm gonna draw people to myself. And I believe that so firmly that I believe that if all of you believe that with me, we could set Portland on fire. Um, God could set Portland on fire through us is a better way of saying that. Um, so does everyone in your life know that you are a Christian? Is, and, and a better way to frame that is, is your identity in Jesus, in Jesus so significant to you that it would be weird for you to not talk with others about him? So that's a really important question. 
for what does Paul say? For I am not what? Ashamed. He wouldn't say that unless being embarrassed of the gospel was a real threat. Um, so this doesn't mean that there isn't fear when we share, but courage is fear under control because we found something worth dying for. Um, so for, that's the first thing. The second thing is, is you don't have to go in for some kind of jugular, especially with your neighbors. They're not going anywhere. Um, so don't be a weirdo. Don't like, don't like, you know, try to get them to sign on the dotted line, like right when you meet them, like get to know them. I just, I just said like, the, be natural, find out what they're interested in, hear their stories, get to know them, know the people in your realm of influence and know who they are so that you know how to talk with them, how to interact with them. So do they feel like they are not projects? They actually feel like they're people known by you and you, and, and you, they, they know you and you know them. Here's the most simple thing. I think people get hung up on like, how do I share my faith with people? And I just laid out a lot of, a lot of things that are just very basic and, and practical uh, as far as like, how do, I how do I interact with people? But you guys aren't me and I'm not you. Each one of you are wired uniquely. Some of you are more shy than others. Some of you are, are like bull, a bull in a china shop and you're, you're socially awkward. I, we're all awkward somewhere, um, but you still have people and friends and people in your realm of influence. Why don't we begin by if the most powerful place where evangelism takes place is in the context of the community? Yes, there is the story of Philip and the eunuch. Yes, there's the story of Jesus and the woman at the well, but what happens after, after Jesus shares with the woman at the well? She goes and invites everyone this is the great model. This is, this is the point. Come and hear. Come and see the man who told me everything about myself. Come and meet this Jesus. Did she have some robust theology? Talk about an evangelist. Jesus said, I'm going to bring you to the source. Meet this Jesus. Come with me. And she takes, she takes the townspeople to Jesus. And they said, you know, we heard her testimony, but now we have heard for ourselves. If you begin by just simply inviting people to church, inviting people to church in the park, these are non-threatening spaces that we have created as a place, the most comfortable space possible to hear the most uncomfortable message possible. Let me or Ian or the preacher do the heavy lifting when it comes to the proclamation, um, to the reinforcement of what hopefully they're observing in your life. And, and they may not, this is how I've seen people get saved at Door of Hope more than any other way. People hear the gospel presented at Door of Hope again and again and again, sometimes for months. People have come for months and heard the gospel. And it's often you invited them and then it, a conversation happens after church over lunch. And they're like, what did you think about what Josh said? And I've seen the, the excitement of people seeing their friend their coworker, their, their neighbor come to faith over the years because they had the courage to invite them to church and then that led to actual conversations that, force, that forces you now to begin to discuss the gospel intelligently with them. You see how that works? It's a, a lot of ideas are put into the head by the preacher, but you still get to be a participant. And if you invite someone to church and they get saved at church, you have more to do with God. God has used you more intensely than, 
then the preacher just preaches the gospel because you took you you did the courageous thing of stepping out and say come and meet the one that has changed my life come and come and be a, come and experience the community that I'm a part of it's amazing you'll feel loved you know what I have found more people come in that have been invited that will just start, they'll break down crying and they don't even know what's happening because now they're experiencing the spirit of God manifested not just in you by yourself, but in the community of faith as a whole, which is why mass evangelism is so powerful, why it actually was so effective, why when Luis Palau did his altar call in Madrid and I stood on the stage behind him, his message was the same message that I give and it wasn't because it was Luis Palau. It was because in that crowd was 35,000 Christians and probably about 15,000 non-believers. And those 35 Christians came expectant and they came, they came praying and they came spirit-filled. And when Luis did that altar call, those, those, those lost people, I think it was 3,500 people responded to the gospel that night. Um, and it was unbelievable. They, Luis had them turn their flashlights up on their phone and put it up in the air and wave it. And it was just like, like just a sea, I mean, amazing. And I saw the after, then he called them all forward. And it was like thousands of people coming forward, sobbing. And then there was hundreds of people ready to pray with everyone individually. And I mean, it was unbelievable, but it was the power of the community together. But it took those people in the community to ask people to come to the, to the festival um, where they were overcome by the power and the presence of Jesus in, that, in, in the Christians that were there. That's what I think makes mass evangelism um, so fruitful. So ask yourself, does everyone I know know Jesus or know that I, I know Jesus? And then have I gotten to know those people in such a way that I can invite them have I invested relationally in a way that I can invite them to come, come to church with me, come and experience the gospel? Have I, have I actually sought out their stories in a way where I can actually find out where they might be hurting, where they might feel lost, where they might feel broken? You know, when people find out that you're a Christian in Portland, I promise you they will not be offended in the way that you think they are. And even if they are, you're not gonna die. They're not gonna attack you. Uh, they just may say like, yeah, it's not for me. Whatever, fine. Have you ever asked someone, hey, is there anything I can pray? Someone told you that they're hurting and you say, can I pray for you? You know, people almost will never turn down prayer. 80% of those that were a survey done, they were asked if they would go to church if someone asked them, said yes. And then when a survey was done of Christians, only 2% of evangelicals said they ever asked anyone to go to church. That is a problem. Um, we can turn that tide. So, simplicity, courage, humility, vision. These are words that should inspire our evangelism, but at the end of the day, it's simply this. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And we know that if I'm going to love myself well, it means I have to submit myself every day to the love of Jesus because that's the only it's the only kind of love that's worth having in me and if I if I have that then I'm going to be able to to love my neighbor means that I'm going to love them with the love of Christ who inspires me and compels me and moves me forward that that's the gospel and that's what we're inviting people into it's that story 
So what does Peter say on the day that, that everyone's, that 3,000 are saved? They were convicted, cut to the heart when the love of God was demonstrated to them. And they said, what do we do? He said, repent and be baptized. Repent wasn't him beating them over their head or with their sin. Repentance was simply stop chasing after that and come. Come to the foot of the cross. Come meet, come meet the king. Be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. These are steps, but we're not going to get them to the repent and be baptized if we don't know that we're loved and we don't love the people that we're actually talking to. So I want to just, um, just in the remaining um, 10 minutes, I'd love to just ask if you guys have any specific questions um, on evangelism. And, and by the way, I've put together um, a document um, a, a, around just passages that speak specifically to witness. Um, and I kind of went, went off the grid and, um, because it's been a long day and I just shared more of my heart. And, um, I, but because I, people always ask me, how do you sh share the gospel? And by the way, I'm sharing something from experience. I have had the privilege of leading hundreds of people personally and in, in front, in front of a tr I, hundreds of door of hope just from preaching the gospel faithfully. But I've, I've also seen personally many, many, many people come to faith through one-on-one -on -one evangelism of just sharing the gospel, everything from my neighbor who came home in a rage because his car had been, um, his car had been broken into and he was in, he was freaking out and I made my son go in and I, I went over and just asked what was going on. And within 15 minutes, um, I was sharing Jesus with them. We went into his house and within an hour and a half, um, we were both on our knees and he was praying to receive Jesus um, with me. It's, I'm not, a, I'm not like some weirdo. I don't even think that evangelism is my main gift. Um, I just think that it's our responsibility to be evangelistic um, as Christians because he says we preach Christ crucified. I'm just pointing, I'm just showing, I'm just one beggar showing another beggar where he can get some bread, as I like to say. <laughs> so um, my, my honesty about my own brokenness often dismantles the walls, and I've seen that that is the thing that often has allowed me to effectively bring the gospel to people, is when they don't sense in me a pretense or some sort of, some sort of elevated sense of holiness. Um, as a pastor, it's like, I, and I'm, I'm not afraid to be all things to all men. I'm not offended by bad language in my presence. I don't, it's actually it takes just, I don't know if it's possible to offend me. Um, and I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, uh, but, but I will say that God uses that, what allows me to enter into brokenness. And so I'm not shocked by people's sin um, because I know what it's like to think there is no way God would ever save a guy like me. Um, and so I, so I think that that naturalness of just being honest about our own brokenness and then, and then, but don't spend a lot of time on your brokenness, spend a whole lot of time on the Jesus that saves. <laughs> That's, I always hate when people give testimonies and they're like, it's 30 minutes of like, and then I did drugs. I stole from a store and, and my mom, and then I was a Coke. It's like, there's just like this reveling in their, in their past. And then it's like, yeah, and then Jesus saved me. And that's the end of their story. And like, no, I don't, I don't care about that. I'm like, be short on that end and be real big on how beautiful Jesus is. But so are there any, any questions um, around uh, both evangelism as a church as a whole or an evangelism um, as an individual? Don't be afraid to ask. And if you don't have any questions, then I'm just assuming that you guys are all naturally just living it out. Yeah. 
Here, st here stand up so I can hear you a little better. And, and, and project, project that voice. I, I personally don't hold the conviction that, um, that I, I mean, I know some that, that are real rigid on, on, you know, you should be baptized by a pastor. I don't, I don't hold that. I've had parents ask if they can baptize their kids at baptism. But what I will say is that I do think, it, I do think that pushing your son to um, the purpose of baptism is, is the same purpose as a wedding. It's a public demonstration. Um, and so, and it's, and it's, you know, for the early Christians, I mean, that was, that was the altar call, was baptism. Um, because to be baptized in the name of, of Jesus uh, was to basically put your life on the line. Um, and, uh, and it was very, it was public, and it was usually in a public setting, which is why we do in the summer, we do them in, in the river. But like, you should talk to your boy about being baptized when we do the, the river, the Selwood River, and, and say, you know, uh, I, and I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna baptize you. Yeah, we, we over the the Selwood Park, we do. Yeah, we do the, um, yeah, we do, and it's really beautiful, and it's. Yeah. So, so, but yeah, as far as you baptizing, that's that's fine. But, but I think this is actually plays deeply into some of the things I'm saying. In order to gain courage, it's like, it's like our love for Jesus should move us beyond our fear of men, and but that's something that isn't. He's not going to experience, he's going to feel afraid until he just steps out and does it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's a great thing. And I think it'll be the thing that gives him the confidence to be, um, to be more of a conduit. So I think if we play into people's fears rather than calling them to something bigger than themselves, um, we're, we're, not, we're not helping. We're not helping people. But we also recognize some people are just unbelievably shy and that's and that's also it's okay um and so i like to meet people where they're at and so you know i'm I by no means think you should like ultimatum like like you can't be baptized unless it's in front of 300 people <laughs> yeah yeah exactly yeah yeah give him give him the space to to move into that um yeah Church in the Park, uh, we originally we were we were planning on doing it on Sunday night and we got enough pushback from on multiple levels, not just from people in the pew, but also from staff themselves like really 
on Sunday, Josh. Um, and, uh, and, and Wednesday has been our traditional rhythm. Um, and so, so, cause Northeast is joining us. So they, they really, they did not want to do it on Sunday night. They wanted to do it on Wednesday cause they have some things happening on Sunday evenings. And it's been great cause it allows us to, it frees up Sunday evening if we want to do special events as well. So, so it is Wednesday night. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. You first. Go ahead. Yeah, so that's, that's a great question. Family is, let me just say, when it comes to family, um, you, if, first of all, if you have family that's, that grew up in the church, uh, like for, so if you, have, if you have kids, for example, that aren't walking with the Lord and, they're, and they've walked away, um, I, I wanna just say, like evangelizing them over and over again is, is not what they need. Um, because they already know it. They know it. So what they need to see is, and sometimes I've seen this, is like where it's like the, it's like even the, the attempts to test how far they can go with like being offensive toward your faith. Or, and that's not very common. Most kids that grew up in the church, if you love them well, they're, they're, they're going to be respectful, but they may not want anything to do with it. And I think that it's, it's the little ways, like Andrew Palau shares about how Luis like shared with him, you know, every, like Andrew didn't come back to the Lord, you know, he really had his kind of final surrender, like I think at 20, same age as me, like 27 or 28. And he just said his dad always wrote him a letter, like letters, but the main thing is his dad just loved him. Without question, you are loved, I, you will always be my son. I'm gonna, and just that continued demonstration of grace is, so, is such a powerful thing. Now, with my dad, who never grew up in the church, um, when I first got saved, I was really zealous, and I would just preach the gospel at him. And I was like, Dad, you're an alcoholic. You know, you, this is like, you, you have no hope. You're not even happy. You're killing yourself. And he would literally be like, he's like, Joshua, shut the bleep, 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 bleep. And he'd hang up on me, just hang up on me. And then I'd get frustrated, and then I wouldn't talk to him for five years because that's super godly. Um, and, uh, and, and when, when I re-engaged with him, um, and I, I write about this in the book, when I re-engaged with him um, about year five of Door of Hope, it was like 2014, I felt the Lord, I got this call that my dad um, was in ICU in Anchorage. He had been, he had been, flown to Anchorage in a helicopter that he had been on a drinking binge. He drank three-fifths of Crown Royal in one day, and he did it three days in a row until his esophagus ruptured, um, and uh, it was like bleeding out, almost died, and when I was flying up there, I felt the Lord put on my heart, he's heard the gospel from you. I want you to live the gospel in front of him, and, and what I realized is that I had not really forgiven my dad, and I really didn't see him as anything more than a project. Um, and I just wanted him to get him saved. I knew he was gonna die, and I'm just like, but I don't want him to die without knowing you, but I am ready for him to just move on, because he's, I mean, that's literally like how tense our relationship was. And it was like, Jesus, save him, but, you know, but then take him immediately, um, which is a horrible thing to say. And it was when I went up there, that and it was the proximity being in the room with his 
with his alcohol stench near death body and helping him go to the bathroom and him falling into my arms um, as he and then trying to wrestle himself out of me and me holding him close to me and saying, dad, I've got you, stop fighting me. It was that moment of surrender where I felt him surrender into my arms and it was probably the first human touch he had had in two years. Um, and me and my heart melt where I actually love this man, this, what I call my stranger father. I loved him. And it was when I really loved him that he began to truly open up to the gospel. And what I found was that I then learned that the nuance is like, I just needed to keep showing up. I needed to keep showing up. And God was so faithful because my dad would get closed off. We, if we started getting, if I got too intense with him on spiritual things, he felt like I had an agenda. And, um, but he loved me and was so proud of me and wanted to be with me, but he just wanted, he didn't want me to just preach at him. He wanted me to talk with him. Um, but God was faithful. I started praying, Lord, raise up other people, um, that could communicate, that could minister to my dad. And he was so faithful. He brought a chaplain into my dad's life who actually led my dad to the Lord. I didn't, I didn't do it. I think Hattie Starr started the seed when she touched him the day that she, um, that she met him and just showed him grace and she'd never met this man in her life um and he was blown away by it and then i think my showing up and being there as his son began to get his wheels spinning that i love my son and i love i'm proud of him and i see his family and he's breaking all the things that i've done and my dad did and his dad did and he's not an alcoholic and he's not a drug user and he's responsible it was like all these things was modeling the gospel in a way that my dad finally gave in to jesus in 2020. so i think that it's complicated with family and so i think once we've shared the gospel with them then it's then it's being once they've heard it um and you know you're going to only have a few opportunities where they're going to be willing to hear it and not just tune you out um then it's just showing up and loving them regardless of how they respond because you just don't know when crisis will hit their life everyone one thing i'm i've become really confident in is i become 50 years old um is that eventually the rug will be pulled out from underneath you and i'm just i'm gonna wait you out because when that when that happens you're gonna start asking me about spiritual things my friend steve I tried sharing the gospel with him. He was, he was such a jerk. Um, and my wife's best friend's husband. And he got terminal cancer at 44 years old. He died at 45, leaving two daughters. And guess who the only person he wanted to talk to for the last three months of his life? Me. Because heaven and hell for him became very real. Um, he had just enough of a Catholic background to like have some pretty big questions about what was going to happen and i was able to love him and meet with him every day and two days before he died he prayed to receive jesus so one of the things that i've become committed with seeing steve and my dad come to faith literally like at death's door is as long as there is breath in our lungs there is hope and so one thing is just don't give up hope for those that are hopeless the other thing is don't ever stop showing them grace because grace is the thing that breaks people down. Um, not like, you don't want this, I, then I can't have anything to do with you. I, it breaks my heart when I see people like, my kid's gay and you know I just can't agree. They're not allowed to bring their partner to my house and I just don't want that in my, because they know we don't approve of it. And I'm like, how are you? Like, you basically just put up a massive wall between you and your kids 
and you don't need to say anything because they already know where you stand on it. What they need to see is your love of them in spite of that. Um, and now it doesn't mean that we like, you know, lie to them and say that we are, you know, I totally agree with how you're living your life. We don't need to say that, but, but what we do need to do is show them, show them grace, um, and endless grace, uh, because I think it's the thing that, that I think it's the thing that leads people. It's the kindness of God that leads people to repentance. Is that, is that helpful? So just be in it for the long haul is my point because <laughs> and the great thing with family is because you are family just protect that relationship because you will have opportunities to to share jesus with them it just might not be when you want it to be yeah any other questions yeah Oh, thank you, Zion. That's so awesome. No, you have to speak into the mic. Do it. Do it. Go, Jenny. Yeah. I mean, this is what I do. Anytime, that's, that's just like a basic smoke screen, you know? So, I mean, I, I always say, listen, there are crappy people in every group of people in the world. Like, so, and what I always say is, is be honest about your own brokenness and say, I, I'm, I, I would never defend my Christianity um, uh, by defending um, the church to a non-believer. I would say the church is made up of sinful, broken people just like you and I. And I'm like, and you say, yeah, I know that. And it's heartbreaking when, as a Christian when, you know, Christians are, end up in the news for being duplicitous. And, and, you know, all I can say is I know the Jesus that I put my faith in and and he's beautiful and he's and he's worth he's worth it's worth getting to know because i would i would i put one thing i would put money down on is if your only perspective of what christianity is is what you've seen in other christians um or or people that call themselves christians or things you've seen in the news i would challenge you to actually read anything on the life of jesus in the bible and see if the jesus on that page lines up with your critique and 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 that's where I th what people have a hard time fighting against is when you just like are not just don't be shaken by their attacks or like what if I just saw you know people get freaked out because everyone has YouTube available to them um, and I had a conversation with someone you know that has YouTube available to them and that and they use straw man arguments that the thing that if you are a YouTube educated person that means your education is about this deep. And it doesn't take hard to press through it and realize that, yeah, I, I know where you've heard that argument. And like, I don't know about that, but this I know, Jesus loves you. He loves you. He is crazy about you. And that's what I believe. And that's the thing that compels me. I can't speak to that, but I know this. Just don't, it's, those are all like red herrings. I just bring it back. Like, yeah, I don't know about, if people bring that kind of stuff, like I just read this thing, blah, blah, blah. And they said they disprove this. I'm like, I don't know anything about that. But I do know this. 
I know in whom I believed and am convinced he's able to complete what he's begun. <laughs> and so, and that doesn't, it's not an avoidance of the, of the topic because they're the ones avoiding the conversation by bringing up things that don't have anything to do with what you're actually talking to them about. Yeah, does that, does that help? That was my approach with the person you know. <laughs> so, yeah. I'll take one more question and then we'll call it, yeah. Yeah, I, I think um, long term, like I have a lot of long term friends that are still not, um, uh, still not walking with the Lord. You know, the ones that are the hardest that I've really not given up on. Um, I actually have people that worked for me at Door of Hope that have walked away from their faith. Um, two. Um, uh, or I shouldn't say, uh, one that actually was an employee. I, no, that's not true. I've actually, there's a few people that have walked away from their faith. Um, and, you know, all three, all three of them um, grew up in the church. And um, uh, one of them, you know, met their husband at Door of Hope. I married them and, um, and the, their marriage blew up. And it was just like, it just blew up. It blew up her world. Um, and she was, I mean, she worked for me for a long time and uh, is, was an amazing employee. And this is the thing that's cool is that um, this woman still has a very close relationship with Darcy and I. Um, she's our realtor now. And, uh, um, and we just love on her and and continue to remind her so that that's the hardest for me is like people that are like man i mean i baptized you how did that like i mean everything in me said that your faith was genuine and it's just like we go through a couple hard years and you're just like it's just jump ship and that kind of apostasy or this getting consumed with the things of the world or becoming hung up on the on the straw man arguments like the church is you know is a organization of you know toxic masculinity i mean i had someone just recently like email me like you know what am i supposed to do when it the whole bible's written by you know when it's uh it's it's a book that's oppressive to women i'm like really like like let's just come back to jesus again how did jesus treat women <laughs> like like what, what are we doing here like this is not what it's about and so i think it's when people lose that center and they get caught up. And I actually think one of the greatest threats to evangelicalism today is empathy unchecked. Um, it's like, it's an emotionalism where we get so worked up, so radicalized by the, by the social issues of, of the moment um, that we can't, we don't know how to uh, maintain our orthodoxy and enter into those conversations. Um, and we begin to believe the we begin to believe the narratives that are floating out there um, and start caring about things other than the gospel to the point where the gospel, and we, it, it always begins with, I'm doing this because of the gospel, but in, but in an actual fact, um, the gospel's never really taken root. And then the causes, the social cause becomes the new, the new center of, of focus. And it's not long before Jesus is abandoned. That's a really hard thing. Um, so the best we can do with people that have walked away or people that don't know that we've known forever is just, is just let them know that no matter what, like I love you and I'm here for you. And if you have a moment where 
you, I, one thing that you can't stop me from doing as a friend, and I don't think you really would want me to, is I'm going to continue to pray for you. And I'm here for you, and, I will t and, and I'd love to share. And then, and then as you continue relationship with them, what I do with, uh, with this woman is I just like, she can't help. She still will ask me what's going on at the church. It just allows me to, to I'm, now I'm able to talk about it without talking at her about it. And so um, natural, let, let Jesus bring the, bring the super part. <laughs> we just be natural, <laughs> let him bring the super part. I often find myself praying for her when I'm talking with her. <laughs> like, um, Lord, give me an opportunity, give me a window. Um, like she has a beautiful little baby and I was just like, I'm like, you really gonna tell me this is not a miracle? And she's like, I, I admit that this is a miracle. <laughs> and so there's ways to get in. Um, there really is. You guys, um, I know this was all over the place, but I hope that there are some practical things. Main thing, I just wanted us to get together and just know, like, it's okay that it's scary. Um, that's not, like, I'm not denying that it's, it's not always easy to, like, and I, I think when we think of evangelism, we just think of strangers, like walking up to strangers. Like, like don't even worry about strangers right now. I mean, pray that God... I want you to be a people, but we got to work up to, to that. Like, like you probably just start with the people that you know, um, of just how, like, and have you even just began by, like I said, do they know you're a Christian? Have you invited them to church? Have you, have you, have you made their interest your interest so that you can enter into their lives in a natural way? Do they feel loved by you? Um, and not a project, um, for you. Uh, and I think all of those things play into a really, I don't need to get, you get doctrine every week, every Sunday, you get Bible every Sunday. Um, but we have to learn how to actually make that, that this God given word that comes to us and the Holy Spirit who illuminates it, it needs to act, the rubber has to hit the road and nothing will bring sanctification. By the way, if you want to grow as a Christian in your sanctification and your discipleship, enter into the call to be a witness. Nothing will cause you to grow faster than beginning to share the gospel because it will reveal the areas that you need to grow in real quick. Um, and so I think that that's, I always say that discipleship and witness cannot be separated from one another. Um, so let me pray for us and uh, you guys love you. I hope to see all of you on Wednesday night. Um, and I am so confident every one of you is going to invite at least 20 people this week to church. Um, and if you don't, it may, you might not be sitting. No, I'm just joking. Um, but do invite someone. See what happens. Uh, there's nothing more exciting than actually seeing that it wasn't that hard. <laughs> so let's begin there. Lord Jesus, um, thank you for your gospel. Thank you for the truth of who you are. And I pray that by your spirit, you would begin to draw people um, to yourself through these people. Lord, it only takes, it only takes one heart on fire to set another on fire and i pray that right now holy spirit we want to just invite you into this space to inflame our hearts and minds we should have invited you in the beginning of this conversation but lord whatever we're inviting you now and asking humbly asking lord we have nothing to offer the people except you and so we ask that you would show up powerfully and that you would give us the words to share, that you would bring to remembrance the things that you have said.
that you would give us insight into the men and women, boys and girls that we interact with. Um, help us to see them as they are divine image bearers who are loved by you. And Lord, I pray first that for every person in this room right now, Holy Spirit, that your love would be poured out in their hearts, that they would know so deeply that they are so unbelievably and radically loved that it would, it would create in them a, um, a desire to carry that love to others and to give it away. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be, um, that, that we would be the first to be last, to be servants um, to this world in which you have placed us to lay down our lives for our neighbor. And our neighbor is whoever's in front of us, behind us, next to us at any given moment of any given day. Lord, do we look for ways that we can enter into conversation with people naturally? Help us to pay attention to the nuances of another life and help us to understand how it is that um, you are the one who does the saving. We're just the witnesses introducing people to the king who is with us. And so, Lord, we love you, and we ask you for this power, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Hey, love you guys. Have a great night.